Revelation chapter 1. In the spring of 1945, the Nazi Germany army was starting to see that the Allied forces were going to prevail. They were defeated, but they were not yet destroyed. They were still keeping many imprisoned in concentration camps. They were still attacking. They were still battling, but they were losing and soon would be destroyed. As we enter into our study of the book of Revelation today, we have a similar story. At the cross and resurrection of Christ, we enter what the New Testament calls the last days. In the last days, though the enemy is defeated, he is not destroyed. And one theologian summarized Revelation in this way. He said, Jesus has conquered evil and rules over the universe, and yet evil, though defeated, has not been destroyed. All of the forces of evil are set against God's church, and one day all evil will be destroyed. It's kind of a summary statement of this entire book. Now, the book of Revelation is often thought of only as like the Antichrist and 666 and doom and gloom, super weird images. But we're excited to jump into this book because it's actually more clear than we often think. We need this book. This book gives Christ's church hope, hope in the midst of living in the already not yet, of of evil being defeated yet not fully destroyed. This book gives hope for Christ's church that's living in the already not yet of Jesus' rule and reign, where we look to his full rule and reign in the new heavens and new earth. This book gives us hope in the Lamb who conquered that we just sang about and to. But he does not conquer with military force, like many a Jew would have expected. He conquers through suffering. And Christ's church learns in this book that being part of Christ's kingdom is walking through suffering and learning to patiently endure. Hardship and suffering in this broken world is not surprising for the believer studying the book of Revelation. They are all part of the plan. Suffering and struggle is part of the plan of a God who stands over history and among his church. He stands over history and in the midst of his churches. So Revelation chapter 1, this is the most important thing I'll say today. Let's read Revelation 1, starting at verse 1. This is God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white with wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and a voice was like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand, He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Commentator G.K. Beale or Greg Beale who we will quote extensively in this series. He's got a really good commentary. His short commentary is like 550 pages. Short, the sh- it's called the short commentary. I was like, good night, dude. What else do you do with your life? So it's really good, though. We're going to quote from him often. He says this summary of chapter 1. John is bearing witness about what Christ has done, and believers are blessed to have, get this, God's perspective on history and obey his commandments. We're to have God's perspective on history. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. That's what we'll see as we go, having God's perspective on history. And point number one, there's going to be four points today. If you're getting fidgety at point number three, I get it. I have three-point sermons a lot. There's four today, just warning. Fourth point, our first point of the four is this, the revealing, verses one through three, the revealing. It's interesting right at the outset what the text says is different from what people often assume about this book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word is apocalypsis, where we get the English word apocalypse. And when, you, when I say the word apocalypse, what kind comes to your mind? It usually is like mystery and something shrouded and not fully seen. And you get that mystery voice that you hear in the movies, one man. No, it's just like that kind of thing is apocalypsis coming. But the, the word, the Greek word apocalypsis basically means this, reveal. 
It's not shrouding, and it's, hi- it's not hiding, it's revealing. This book is to reveal things about God, not be like crazy mysterious, and like what in the world's going on? We've got to get out charts and graphs to figure this out. It's a revealing which God gave him to show, again, reveal to his servants the things that must soon take place. So this book has some mystery for sure. We aren't used to apocalyptic genre of literature, but if you study any type of literature, whether it's poetry or something else, there's different things, there's different tools you have to use to figure it out. So apocalyptic literature has some tools that we'll work on as we go. And some of us have to deconstruct, which is a word people use today, and actually this is actually a helpful place, most of it's not, deconstruct our thoughts of the book of Revelation and actually not just think of what Revelation was, of what we've thought, but what Revelation is as we study the text. Not just our backgrounds, not just movies we saw, not just books we read, but what does the Bible say? Verse 1 says that, the, that God is showing what must soon take place. What Daniel calls the latter days, John says it's happening now. A lot of it's happening now. This is soon going to take place. So we've got to consider when John's writing 2,000 years ago, there's some history of the early church that took place that the book of Revelation is talking about, as well as some things that are taking place right now. In the last days is what the Bible says, which is now, and some will take place in the future. Our job is to figure out which is which as we start studying the text. Some framework for us that, that really helps me is there's mainly three sections of the book of Revelation. There's chapters 1 through 5, 6 through 19, and 20 through 22. That will help you if you have a framework as we look. So chapters 1 through 5 is the introduction. It's talking about uh, the, the seven churches, which we'll be looking at in detail over the next several weeks. Um, and so that's kind of the structure there. And then you have the throne room of chapter 4 and 5, what we actually just sang a ton about. That's chapter 4 and 5. And everybody likes this section. This is pretty, okay, makes sense. Chapters 1 through 5, got it, good to go. Then we go to chapter 6 through 19. This is the section that gets freaky weird. And people get all choked up and hung up out like, what is this all about? Chapter 6 through 19 really tell the same story over and over and over again. It's the story of our history. Josh talked about this on his, uh, the podcast, if you listen to it. This is a helpful illustration. If you watch football and there's a goal stand, and the running back's trying to get across the line, and he's like jumping across. You're like, did the ball get over the line or not? And they're looking at this camera angle, and that camera angle, and this camera angle, and this camera. And they're like, did he get across? We're not watching 15 different plays. We're watching the same play, 15 different angles. That's what happens in chapter 6 through 19. We're watching what's happened in history, what's happening in history, and what will happen in history through different angles, different camera angles. And what's it talk on? It speaks of the suffering and struggles of Christ's church, the attack upon attack of Satan, and the victory of King Jesus ending in final judgment. 
So there's seven seals that speak about this. There's seven trumpets that speak about this. There's seven bowls that speak about this. It's the goal line stand, and we're looking at different angles in those chapters. One, a little fancy word you can use with your friends around the water cooler tomorrow is recapitulation. All right? Recapitulation is the camera angles. If, if you can't handle that, just go camera angles, replay. That's the idea of recapitulation. And then chapters 20 through 22, we like those a lot too. Those aren't as hard. 20 is, but 21 and 22 aren't. They speak again of final judgment and then the age to come, the new heavens, new earth, the restored Eden where everything's back. The tree of life is back. Last time we saw that was in Genesis. And God and man are together. I will be your God and you will be my people. Now back to, that's hopefully that's a helpful framework. We'll refer to it as we go. Back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 speak of John as the author. We'll talk about him as we get into uh, verse 9. And then verse 3 gives the reader a very encouraging statement on the outset of studying this book. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. We are blessed if we do what? If we read, if we hear, and if we keep the teachings of this book. If we read this book aloud, if we read it, which we're doing. We're re- I'm reading it. If you read it at home to your kids, like reading this book there's, brings blessing. And then hearing, the word is akuo. It's one of my favorite Greek words, I don't know why, it just looks cool, and, uh, but it means listen intently. It's this leaning in to listen. It's not just hearing the noise like the bird woke you up this morning. It's, it's listening intently and then keep. That means there's ethical implications to this book. It makes a claim on your life. We are called to obey, to guard, that word speaks of. And there's an enduring a faithfulness that the reader is called to. And what is the person who, who, who does that, who reads and, and who listens and keeps this book of the Bible, this book of Revelation? What is the promise? Blessing, favor, happiness. And it doesn't just speak of this in Revelation chapter 1. It speaks of it again in Revelation 22 verse 7. And behold, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. There's a great podcast by um, a lady named Nancy Guthrie who uh, had the podcast is actually called Blessed, and she interviews top scholars about the book of Revelation. And her premise for the podcast, and I'd recommend you, you take the time to listen to that if you want to dig in here. Her premise is, don't we want to be blessed? As believers, don't we want to be blessed? Well, this passage says, well, we're blessed if we do these things. So why wouldn't we want to do these things? That's basically her premise. For some of us, as we think about the book of Revelation, we're tempted to not even lean into this. Uh, We think of the book of Revelation, some of us are like, yeah, yeah. And some of us are like, I, mm, I've been avoiding this. I like 65 books of the Bible. And Leviticus sometimes hangs me up, so 64. I kind of have my own books of the Bible that I like. Some of us, we come to this book of the Bible and there's fear, there's confusion, maybe frustration. 
If you struggle with fear or intimidation when coming to the book of Revelation, we just want to encourage you that there is sweet blessing in studying this book. If you come with confusion because you've heard Revelation taught with lots of charts and graphs and you can't keep up with where, what is going on and when it's going to happen and should I be scared or not and is he coming now or what's going on and, and all that, we want to teach you and we're excited to teach you what we believe is a more faithful and historically acceptable way of reading the book of Revelation. Our teaching is going to be similar to Augustine and Calvin and not the Left Behind series. It's historically rooted in what the church has believed for 2,000 years. And if you come to this book with frustration, my prayer is that there would be an openness and a fresh passion to study God's Word. For it's not your experience or your opinion or the book or movie you saw that matters. What matters is God's Word. It's not even what I say unless it's aligned with God's Word and what the other guys who are preaching say. We must align with what God's Word says. And this book invites us to lean in, invites us to learn, but not just intellectual facts. It invites us to know who God is, have a relationship with God, what God thinks about His people. It invites us to know, point two, the triune God. We'll see the triune God addressing us in the opening verses. But before we get to that, who is the triune God speaking to? It says, verse 4, the seven churches that are in Asia. So the primary audience, which is important when you're studying the Bible, who's the audience? The audience isn't you primarily. There was an original audience that you've got to get to know in order to not take things out of context. The original audience was the seven churches that are in Asia. We'll be studying them a lot over the next few weeks. But we've got to understand something else with even that number seven. And this is where you're like, okay, my brain's about to explode as we dive in. Numbers in apocryphal literature mean more than the numbers oftentimes. So you see this in other, other ways. And so numbers like 10 and 12 are going to mean something. We'll talk about that. The number seven often means completion or wholeness in apocalyptic literature. So there are physically seven churches, but we can apply that there's, this is speaking to more than just the seven churches. This is speaking to all the churches, the complete churches of Christ, the wholeness, the perfection, kind of like the seven days of creation. So we'll see lots of sevens in the book of Revelation, the seven spirits, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. There's a wholeness and completion. And what is written what does John write? Well, he writes a letter from the triune God. Look at verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. So I'll submit to you this is written from the triune God. Him who is and who was and is to come, verse 8 uses that same phrase, is the Lord God speaking. I'm going to submit that this is God the Father speaking. My Bible actually has it in red thinking it's Jesus. I actually think it's the Father. And then the seven spirits, you're like, oh my gosh, I've always learned there's one spirit. There's seven spirits? Well, if we're back to wholeness, there's the, the whole spirit, the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then it speaks of Jesus Christ. And I love how it describes Jesus. And Jesus really takes center stage in the rest of the text. 
Jesus is described as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. The Greek word there for witness is martes, where we get the word martyr. Jesus is the faithful martyr. Jesus died for truth. He's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus died but rose from the dead, and he conquered by his blood. He conquered sin and death and Satan, and now he's the ruler of the kings on earth. Jesus conquers. He's the king of kings. We'll see in chapter 19. He's the victorious warrior king. But we must understand something. This is taking us back to when John's writing this, around 90 AD or something like that. It did not look like Jesus was king at that moment. What was being experienced by believers was a lot of persecution and a lot of seduction. Like the the government, the Roman government demanded people to worship Caesar, demanded you to worship the emperor. And if you didn't, some would be persecution, but some also would be like, well, you don't get in the trade guilds. If you don't get in the trade guilds, it is economic suicide to not be in. So then you can't get in the economy. What happens if you're not involved in the economy of wherever you live? That means you don't make money. That means you're stinking poor. That means you can't do anything. Like, they were trying to squeeze them out. And so John's like, he's king of kings? He's, he's the, the ruler of the kings of earth? And the, the Christians there in Ephesus or Smyrna are like, man, this, this, is, this doesn't feel like he's king. We'll read the letter of Smyrna. You're about to die. Okay. This doesn't feel like he's king. So they need to know who Jesus is because there's persecution and seduction all over the place. And the book of Revelation will teach us God's perspective on history, heaven's perspective on the future. Verse, the second part of verse 5 continues, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a great description of our hope in Jesus. This is a great summary of the gospel. Jesus loves us. Jesus freed us from our sin. Don't get over that. Jesus freed us from our sin by his blood. And that death and resurrection, that we're united to Christ, that death and resurrection changes us. It changes our identity. We're no longer in the dominion of darkness. We're in the kingdom of the beloved Son. So we're in a kingdom and we are priests. Those are two identities that are massive in this text. Greg Beale says this, How could us being part of a kingdom and priests to our God affect our daily life? Great question. This isn't just out there. This isn't just some abstract concept. This should affect you this afternoon. This should affect you tomorrow morning. Not just that he's king. Yes, we worship him. He's worthy. But chapter 5, when we sang this, we will reign with him. There's a, there's a dominion that we take part of because he's brought us into the family. So then we exercise dominion by 
creative ways. We take ownership where there's brokenness. We have a confidence in the royal way of King Jesus. We make plans according to the king. We give generously because he's a generous God and he's got a generous kingdom. So we see need and we go toward it. But also we're not just in the royalty, we're also priests. We're to care for others. We're to counsel others. We're to love others. We're to willingly lay down our lives for others, willingly sacrifice for others, pray for others, mediate for them. These are two identities of God's people, and they are not new. This isn't a new concept that is being brought up in Revelation 1, like, this hasn't been anywhere. Wow, that's really cool. No, God's been saying this the whole time. Genesis chapter 2 this is who Adam and Eve are. And then after sin comes in the world, God gathers his people out of slavery in Exodus chapter 19. And he comes to them and said, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. That's who you're going to be. You know what they say? Ah, just talk to Moses. We're not really that interested in that. Now we're back. We're a kingdom of priests to our God. Revelation 1-7 then says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So we're introduced to kind of a theme in Revelation. You have the ones who are a kingdom of priests. They're like, yeah, we're worshiping Jesus. We're living for Jesus. And then you have others that aren't on that team. They're wailing when they see this king coming because they know they're rebelling against him. They're wailing at the return of Christ. And what we'll find, and Josh alluded to this in his podcast, is that um, John is like a good painter. So a painter has his palette, okay? And he's painting with, you know, a little bit of gray here, a little bit of red there. Well, he's painting with, what's his honest palette? It's the Old Testament. He's painting with a little bit of Ezekiel here, a little bit of Genesis here, a little bit of Daniel over here. We'll see that even in our text. Right here, he's painting with a little bit of Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10, And when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him and weep bitterly. So not everyone's excited about King Jesus. There's going to be mourning at his coming as well. You see, the gospel aroma is life to life, 2 Corinthians says, and death to death. Some of what I'm even preaching today are hitting ears and hearts of like, this is awesome, and others are like, this is awful. Same message, same gospel words that hit people, hit different hearts differently. The Bible says, yep, that's what it's like. We'll see the picture in Gen uh, sorry, Revelation 19, that Jesus' robe is dipped in blood, and it's not his blood. It's the blood of the enemies. He is the victorious warrior coming in judgment in chapter 19. Final judgment as you head to chapter 20. And the Father speaks in verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega. The Alpha is the first letter in the alphabet. That's where we get alphabet, Right? It's the first letter, and omega is the last letter. He's everything in between. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All history is under the authority of God. And then the Lord God, God describes himself as this, who is and who was 
who is to come the Almighty. What's interesting, he puts the present tense, then the past tense, then the future tense, which is very unusual. You usually do past, present, future, right? But he puts the present tense, and most commentators think it's because that church who's walking through the persecution needs to be aware of the presence, the present tense of God, right? So when things are really hard and they're suffering, it's great to know God's with me in the past and the future. But what do I need right now? I need to know the presence of God now. And that's what they're saying, like, who is? Or as Yahweh, his name, Moses, is the I was? No, he's the I am. I am who I am. He's present all the time. He's outside of space and time. Yahweh is there. That's the God of history and over history. So then we get some more of the scene set up as we continue in verse 9 of the author and audience. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John speaks to these churches and says that he's a brother and partner. He's not like some distant uncle, like, writing to him. He knows them. He's with them. He probably lived in Ephesus for quite a while, maybe even helped start that church, some think. He knows these people. And let's just think about who John is. John was a fisherman and then became a fisher of men. He was the beloved disciple. Some say the disciple whom Jesus kept on loving. He's the one who stood by at the cross when others fled. Who Jesus looked from the cross and said, take care of my mom. That's John. He became the author of the Gospel of John and the letters of John. He was a faithful apostle. Most think he was the last one to die of the original 12. He's an aged man at this point probably in his 80s or 90s, with many ups and downs. And he says this, that he's a brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, friends, we've got to note something. Those aren't separate things. Actually, in the original language, there's only one article. In, in my English Bible, it has the and the, the, and the, like it's three separate things. But actually, in the original, it's all together. Tribulation, kingdom and patient endurance are inseparable. Like, we don't get a buffet line. I really like the kingdom and the endurance part, but that tribulation stuff, can I, like, leave that off of my life? No, if we're part of the kingdom of God, if we're priests to our God, if we're part of this kingdom as citizens of the kingdom, tribulation is part of the story, which will also help with the faithful endurance or the patient endurance. This all goes together. And John lived that. He knew that. So we don't get to skip that. It's encouraging for us who are in Christ to not be surprised by tribulation, to live as kingdom citizens and to patiently endure. We'll see that theme throughout. And John is in Patmos, on an island, exiled. Like, I mean, if, if I'm a, you know, magistrate, I'm probably not really worried about the 80 or 90-year-old, like causing the uprising. But here's John, who they're concerned about. They know him, they've seen him, 
and they know the gospel message he's proclaimed, and why is he in? What's the text say? Why is he on the island? Why is he in this prison, exiled, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus? You know what that means John was doing? He was speaking the word of God at 80 or 90 years old. He was speaking about the testimony of Jesus. He was faithful to end well, and he was speaking, and it freaked the government out of his faithfulness. Verse 10 says that the Lord, on the Lord's day, the, a loud voice spoke, told him to write a book to seven churches. We're not going to get into seven churches now because we will in the next few weeks, but we've got to note this. Jesus really cares about his churches his people, his body, his bride. The priority of his church is a theme throughout the book of Revelation. And what we find in our last point today is this, the Christ among his churches. The Christ among his churches. There are three passages in Revelation that give kind of portraits of Jesus. Chapter 1, chapter 5, and chapter 19. And they all are a little bit different. Chapter 5 has uh, the, the line of Judah who, when he hears the, about the line of Judah, and then, then John sees what he thinks is going to be the line of Judah, but it's the slain lamb. So this lion-lamb figure is what chapter 5 shows. Chapter 19 shows this, this warrior king, this victorious warrior king. But what does chapter 1 show? What's important about chapter 1 in this picture of Jesus? Here's who Jesus is in chapter 1. He's the glorious king that the Old Testament foretold. All that the, the writings and the prophets, the Psalms, all that has been foretold is fulfilled in Jesus. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, that's the churches, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. So John hears the loud voice, and it is Jesus speaking. And where is Jesus? He's walking among the golden lampstands. He's walking among his churches. Jesus walking among his churches. Friends, Jesus' love for and priority of his churches is significant. He always has an eye on his church. And how is Jesus described? As one like a son of man. And you might be like, okay, what does that mean? Well, that's a quote from Daniel chapter 7. We've got the painter's palette. John's painting a portrait with Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is a significant text. Every Jew knows that Daniel 7 is speaking of the Messiah, the coming Messiah who comes before what's called the Ancient of Days, what we call God the Father, comes before him. He's going to receive a kingdom and power and glory. That's the son, one like a son of man. And here's the one like the son of man, King Jesus on the throne and speaking bold, loud words to John as he stands among his church. And then we see Jesus described, verse 13. In the midst of the lamp stands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, verse 14, and the hairs of his head were white like wool, 
as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand were the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. much that is trying to be said to us. A long robe, and the Old Testament people would get this, the long robe is, is, is a priestly authority. The golden sash is a kingly authority. The hair that's wool or snow-like identifies Jesus with the Ancient of Days, His divinity. The eyes like flaming fire are penetrating, all-seeing, all-knowing. The feet like burnished bronze are enduring. There's an immovable foundation. The voice like the roar of many waters are words of power and authority. No one can ignore this voice. The stars in the right hand are the messengers or the angels that are prized by Jesus. That his right hand are going to his churches. The mouth has a sharp two-edged sword that the word that cuts down enemies, cuts into the heart, discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.11. And the face like the sun shining in full strength, blinding glory and radiance. We must note that these descriptions are symbolic. They're using human words to describe the indescribable glory of Jesus. Commentator Dennis Johnson says this, The symbols seen in John's vision reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. His identity as the searcher of hearts, full of consuming holiness and boundless wisdom, the perfect priest standing for his people before the Father, the perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. It is a startling and overwhelming vision of Jesus. How startling and how overwhelming? Oh, very startling and overwhelming. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Boom. John, boom. I think John passed out. He's so overwhelmed, he hits the floor. But notice what our wonderful Savior does. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. This powerful God-man king with radiance and glory and majesty comes near to John. And just note this, John knows Jesus. He walked with him for thirty or three years. He saw him die and resurrect and ascend. Like, this guy knew Jesus, but even this knowledge that he had in Jesus' earthly ministry, like, he's dropping down on the floor in the kingly majesty. Fear not, John. I'm the first and the last. First and the last, the Father said, I'm the Alpha Omega. He's the first and last. There's divinity of Jesus. Jesus is over all. Jesus is the living one, he says. I died and behold, I am living forever. Jesus conquered through his death, but he did not stay dead. He's the firstborn from the grave. He says, I have the keys of death in Hades. Jesus has complete control and complete access. He has power to open and close doors. 
And then verse 19, write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that shall take place. Past, present, future moments are in this book. And Jesus finishes with speaking of the seven stars being the angels and the seven lampstands being the churches, Jesus among his churches. So we come to an end of chapter 1, and what do we find? Here's what we find. Christ stands over human history and stands among his churches. Christ, your Savior, your King, stands over human history and stands among his churches. That's our Savior. That's our King. Friends, this is not hypothetical. This is not theoretical. This is Jesus right now over human history, right now over the circumstances in your life, right now knowing exactly what's going on. We live in the last days where the struggle with Satan is real, but Jesus is with his church. And so this gives us confidence to endure in times of tribulation and suffering and struggle. We are a kingdom of priests, and he is our king. So friends, let us have confidence. Aslan's on the move. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, because we're on offense with King Jesus. We're a kingdom of priests. We're going for it. Friends, how does that change your confidence? about whatever trials going on in your life, whatever decisions are going on in your life, whatever struggles you're having in your parenting or your workplace or your neighbor or your roommate? How does that change if Jesus is over history and he's with his church and he knows you and he loves you and he cares for you? It teaches us to trust. It teaches us to endure. Our prayers and eldership is that you would, we would learn from this book, and be blessed by it. Let me pray. Father, you...